Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good and welcome morning. to Tuesday Breakfast. <laughs> I was just talking straight at you then, George. So like, oh, good morning, George. How are you? It's just us. It's just us two today. Yes. Um, so we've got a really fun show on today. Mm-hmm. We did not go to Golden Plains, so we are relatively well rested. Yeah, I, I was just going to say we have no excuse not yeah, to we have be. No excuse. Yeah, I yeah. don't know if we're rested, but no. we we are certainly. Um, yeah, we can't put our our uh, tiredness to a huge amount of fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's just FOMO, serious FOMO. <laughs> um, so. Today we will be speaking to Wallace from the Foundation of Young Australians, um, who is hosting an incredible event called Breaking the Binary uh, tomorrow actually, cool. in Brunswick, um, which is an interactive evening where participants will have the opportunity to share their own story of identity through workshops and group discussions about inclusion, identity and equality. And it is an event hosted as part of the Foundation for Young Australians, which is really exciting. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Are you going? I'm actually speaking. Oh, yeah. oh you told me that. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, I, I I will definitely be in attendance. Will be there, yeah. there will be a uh, short film. So uh, Francesca Gonzalez is the headliner, mm-hmm. um, as well as W M N and spoken word by Kia Parrot and myself, and a short film called My Walk Home. Cool. Um, it'll be a very lovely event, and it yeah. ends pretty early, which is nice. It's yeah. sort of like a pretty. Um, yeah, inclusive space, 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. Cool. I'd love to go to that, and I can't wait to hear more. Yeah. Um, we'll be speaking. We'll have an extended interview today, which Ooh. is exciting, uh, for a very special guest, Lar- Larissa Crawford, who is the founder and managing director of Future Ancestors Services, which many of you might have heard of, especially if you use social media, because a lot of their activism gets shared across a lot of different... That's where I first... Yeah, absolutely. They seem to be responsible for quite a few, um, even sort of uh, international hashtag movements and and things like that. They do a lot of great work. Yeah, totally. Um, And just to give you more background, if you haven't heard of them before, they're an Indigenous and Black-owned enterprise that provides speaking, training, research and community services that that centre ancestral accountability, climate justice and equity working across Canada. So we'll be talking about Larissa's, I guess, sort of, um, I hate the word journey, I'm trying to think of another Mm. word, (laughs) Um, kind of relationship to activism. Relationship to activism and and how she got into activism and Mm. to start this. Thank you. (laughs) And, um, and, And also we'll be talking about code switching in these spaces and 
It'll also be really nice to ask her about International Women's Day mm. and what that means to her and what that, what's been going on in Canada around that. And, and also what we can sort of learn between, you know, thinking about, I guess, ideas of transnational solidarity and what campaigns are going on in Canada that we should know about and support. Absolutely. We'll also be speaking to Jason Wong um, about the relationship between racism and the coronavirus panic, which is currently just um, absolutely out of control here in this country. Jason Wong is a Chinese-Malaysian international student um, who is currently training to be a secondary science teacher and is also a member of Solidarity. So he was actually involved with um, STAR's work against the travel ban a few weeks ago. So that'll be really exciting. Yes, and he's, um, I think he's one of the main organisers for an event that's tomorrow. It's a, it's a meeting to talk about all of this stuff. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Cool. Uh, which we'll share the details for. Great. Um, so that's what's on for the show. That's today. what's on the show today. <laughs> which is a stick with us. Yeah. Kevin Hines Grow delivers gardening and nature-based programs to people of all ages and all abilities. Our programs provide great opportunities for positive personal development and well-being. Join us on Saturday, the 21st of March, for our annual Autumn Fair and Open Day. This is our fantastic opportunity for you to meet our friendly team and learn more about our programs with a focus on experiential learning and positive personal development. There will also be a huge variety of perennials, fruit trees, herbs and seedlings for sale in the nursery, as well as great coffee and food. Our Autumn Fair and Open Day will be held from 9am till 3pm at 39 Weatherby Road, Doncaster and 512 Sydney Road, Coburg. Kevin Hines Grow is a 3CR supporter. Okay, welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Um, we're going to be reading out some news headlines. Um, every time I do this, I am always reminded by the, how terrible the state of the world is. So it's just yeah, another reminder yeah. today. But I have tried to put in... Um, a couple of positive points, which is mainly for my own well-being. Um, so the social services minister, Anne Rustin, actually used International Women's Day to announce that the government would put $20 million into a no-interest loan scheme, which provides loans of up to $2,000 to people fleeing violent situations. This wasn't actually a new initiative. This is just a re-announcement of an older initiative that was um, quite controversial because it didn't address at all the larger systemic issues at play with domestic violence and treated it like a little bit of a... The way it was advertised was almost like a bit of a home loan. Um, Here, have $2,000 and then pay us back, no interest, Um, which is, yeah, really, really frustrating. a bit yucky. A bit yucky. Um, Hayley Foster, the Chief Executive Officer of Women's Safety in New South Wales, said that the government had failed to commit to any serious action in addressing domestic violence across the nation. The government actually didn't even address um, any uh, domestic violence awareness advocate bodies, even the ones within the Liberal Party, um, so did it all very um, backhandedly as well. This $20 million could be going directly into the specialist frontline domestic violence services, um, Foster said, which support women and children to escape and recover from violence. But instead, it's been funneled to a separate agency that women would then have to negotiate with and be case managed by in order to access the funds and then inevitably repay them. 
Um, so it's very individualistic and a bit of a Band-Aid approach to DV. Mm. Um, and one of my favourite quotes from Hayley Foster in The Guardian today was, with respect, whoever has developed this policy has not consulted with or even thought about the actual experience of women escaping domestic violence and the services whose job it is to support them through this process, which I thought was a really nice reminder on International Women's Day, well, the the couple of days after International Women's Day, Mm. um, that for real pragmatic change to happen, we need to consult these people. Mm. Um, The peak body for Australia's physicians has called on the Health Minister to develop a national framework to ensure that trans children and adolescents have greater and consistent access to treatment. This was um, in response to an apparent national inquiry um, into whether or not uh, trans youth are entitled to medical treatment. Um, and medical being also psychological treatment, um, which was just incredibly controversial um, and would further harm vulnerable patients and their families. Um, So the particular uh, spokesperson for The Guardian, who I've just forgotten his name and I should have written down, um, I will get that up after um, a sting here, but he did say something along the lines of um, all this inquiry, all this public inquiry would do would be... Um, to cause public uh, panic surrounding trans folk and to, again, um, objectify and highlight them in the media and um, make it much harder for them. So it is kind of great that there is um, a collection of physicians who are anti this um, and are wanting to make sure that trans children and adolescents have much greater and more consistent access to treatment. Um, It's just a shame that this has to be... And done in response to something so explicitly um, fear-mongering. Mm. In LGBTQI plus news, um, the first Mercury retrograde of the decade is finally coming to an end. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it is a full moon today. So wow. I woke up this morning and thought about all of the astro babes, the astro queers <laughs> out there. Um, uh, solidarity, I am here with you. Uh, since February 16th, we've been experiencing some serious confusion around our emotions and intuition. Um, and the moon is absolutely the root to our distress and nothing else. <laughs> love that. <laughs> I thought that would be a positive way to, to yeah, spin off the news. Definitely. And it seems to be that the only people I speak to about astro stuff are queers. Um, so, yes. yeah, no, no surprises there. <laughs> um, I wanted to add to that, and sorry to... Bring um, it back to reality. Bring it back to, yeah, <laughs> from that nice way that you rounded it off. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, we were talking about this on the way in. Mm. Uh, another um, trans journalist working for The Guardian has quit. Uh, that happened yesterday. Um, and this is this is pretty significant, yeah. I feel. And we just also saw the signing of a, a letter. So hundreds of staff at The Guardian have signed a letter to the editor criticising its transphobic content. So it's not just that we've had these three journalists stepping down, we're also seeing this support Absolutely. Um, from the the wider Guardian community. There were some um, folks in the the wider community, such as Rennie Edo Lodge, the um, incredible author, um, Amelia Warmack, the deputy leader, um, Tai Shani, the co-winner of the Turner Prize in 2019. There were so many, there were over 100 people mm. that signed this letter, just essentially declaring that... Um, 
they reject the argument put forward in the column by Suzanne Moore, um, mm. which we will not be paraphrasing because it's the same old turfy arguments that are used. Um, nothing new or at all interesting. Um, just more harm. Um, but the frustrating thing was when the Guardian, um, you know, I guess in a attempt to make amends when they published the differing perspectives on um, trans rights, the vast majority of, of perspectives they published after the large letter um, were all in favour of Suzanne Moore. So they clearly do not get it. Um, mm. And they are still clearly framing this as a point of, like we're saying in the, in, on the way here, point of you know, uh, difference in opinion when it mm. is much more harmful than that. Totally. And I agree that we shouldn't go into the details of Susan Moore's piece, but just to give context, and I, this relates to, um, I guess, what I want to say about this, the idea that trans rights are in collision with women's rights is a misrepresentation of the work that a lot of people are trying to do at the moment. Absolutely. And the harm that that can cause, and we already have issues where feminism gets misrepresented by mainstream media, so you can see an agenda there Absolutely. to create this narrative. And, of course, those views are still still held and there are still people that would identify as feminists that are deeply transphobic but to not allow yeah as you said if the articles that are being published after that are from people who are sympathetic to her position then we're not really getting a representative kind of um understanding of what people are saying about this yeah for sure um and some this conversation george and i were having earlier just about how a lot of media outlets um, and even academic spaces tend to um, tend to highlight these sort of two sides of the story when um, it is a lot more nuanced than that, and they and one of those sides is always something incredibly um, fascist or um, phobic of some way, shape, or form, um, and then the other the other argument is often quite centrist. Um, and, yeah, we need to make sure we hold our media outlets accountable for this sort of irresponsible fear-mongering when it comes to mm. um, trans folk. Yeah. And, I'm, and I know that we're sort of rehashing this conversation, <laughs> but I'm, I'm really interested to see, you know, we're talking about how this is a really interesting time to see this. Yeah. And we've, we've, there's been so much activism and, and, and such a conversation around criticizing the idea of objectivity and that you can have a media outlet that presents, as you said, both sides when there's only two mm. and one of them is really discriminatory and the other one is centrist and doesn't really allow for other perspectives. Absolutely. So uh, is this a time where this is really being called out in both, as you said, um, in the media and in academic spaces? Mm. And are we going to see some shifts around this or people acknowledge, no, there is no such thing? As, as something that can be completely objective mm. and you may as well just be transparent about where you stand. Yes, that's very true. And it is a, it's, a, it's a time waster. I was speaking to one of my friends about this recently who went to a panel recently on... Um, uh, it was a pro-choice panel and it was all about the nuances of um, the politics of abortion. And one thing she said was it was so refreshing to see a panel where there was no time spent arguing whether or not abortion was an okay thing, essentially, in the context of, you know, uh, I find a lot of distrust surrounding um, abortion or, or all topics. There is a lot of time spent talking about the those who don't agree. And so much more was covered because they just didn't address that and they didn't have to pander to that sort of hate. Yeah. Um, and we, if we can have 
a discourse that doesn't necessarily have to always highlight the bigotry. I mean, the yeah. bigotry lives around us. It's everywhere. We know what it looks like. Um, so I don't know why media outlets tend to be so married to um, creating a space for that sort of hatred. Yeah, and then I think that's such a good point because then we're we're just going around in circles at every event or every article where it's acknowledging those positions, and then we're not able to have a deeper, more nuanced conversation. Absolutely. So it actually serves a political it serves purpose. a political purpose because yeah. it's distracting. It's yeah. inherently distracting. Um, and if yeah, that's what people want. They don't know where their allegiances stands. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it is it's quite terrifying. I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but at the same time, it is also really an obvious thing that the media tend to do. Yeah, absolutely. So we might go to a song. Yay! Um, I wanted to play this track by one of my favourite artists, Kylie Oldest, uh, and this song is called Body.
celebrate your furry and feathered friends at Pets in the Park for a day of entertainment, competitions, wildlife encounters and interactive demonstrations in the name of responsible pet ownership. Interactive Australian wildlife encounter The Root Keepers return along with animal behaviourist Lara Shannon from TV's Pooches at Play. And vet expert Dr Melissa Meehan demonstrates animal first aid for that special member of your family. Pets in the Park, Sunday the 22nd of March, 11 till 4pm, Central Park, Malvern East. The City of Stonington is a 3CR supporter. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices Aboriginal voices are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things like And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Cool. <laughs> Welcome back to 3CR. <laughs> I love that George put the mic on and then just gave me the most hilarious smile while I went, oh, cool. Cool <laughs> way to... Good way to welcome the, the, the segment. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Very cool. Very cool. Um, we thought we talked a little bit about International Women's Day that just passed. Um, I'm not sure if many of our listeners went to one of the marches in Melbourne. I think it was the, I I'm, can't remember who who actually organised it. Um, but it was it was on the Thursday afternoon. Yeah, late Thursday afternoon. Um, and in predictable news, there were uh, some. Turfy and swerfy, uh, quote unquote, protesters there um, that were being particularly violent to um, trans women that attended the uh, march, and 
just violent in general, were quite sort of brazen and carried these atrocious signs. Um, I probably should have put a content warning before I started speaking about that just now. Um, so just here, a little content warning. We, we will be discussing a little bit of um, transphobia and uh, um, violence against women. Um, and if you at all need to take a break or make a phone call, a good phone call to make would be to uh, queue life on one eight hundred one eight four five two seven. They provide support. So yeah, there there were some large demonstrations around the world with International Women's Day, huge, um, especially in cities including Madrid, Buenos Aires, Kiev, and Manila. Um, and murders of women in Mexico as well, often accompanied by sexual violence and brutality. So there were a lot of there were a lot of protests in Mexico, which is quite incredible. Um, and even in parts of the world where there is quite a frenzy around coronavirus, um, there were some quite powerful photos of women uh, with disinfectant and just like out there in the streets doing their thing. So I thought that was that was quite nice. Yeah, the yeah. dedication. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but yeah, in Melbourne, we had a horrific display of transphobia that took place. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't actually been um, published much on in the news, which is unsurprising. Um, but a friend of mine did take some um, incredible photos mm. identifying the transphobes that were in attendance. Yeah, it really shows how important it is. For us, so sometimes you can feel silly when you're using social media, you know, why am I sharing this? Mm. But if the media isn't reporting, that we, the fact that we can get on our phones and we can, we can film and we can take photos and we can let other people know that this was happening... Absolutely. It's so important. Yeah, yeah, especially at a point of privilege. If you are in those spaces and you do witness this sort of violence occurring and you are, you don't feel particularly unsafe yourself. Yeah. Um, I think using your platform to highlight that violence is, you know, a wonderful form of citizen mm. journalism. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, I thought that would be a really good way to, I guess, lean into a conversation we are super excited to be having soon. Um, with Larissa Crawford, who is the founder of um, Future Ancestors Services um, and was also just featured recently in um, <clears throat> Global News' Black History Month article. Cool. Super exciting. Yeah. Um, she's only 25 and she is an unstoppable force. So, yeah, we're super excited to be speaking to her soon. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that... Um, we've talked about with our broader Tuesday breakfast group um, is, I guess, the, the the lack of representation that we see on days like International mm. Women's Day, and still the whiteness or the 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 cisness. Yeah, <laughs> um, I feel like that's something that a lot of people have been talking about, and. And we see this every year, and we see the same thing at the protests every year, uh, where we have the swerf and turfs rocking up. And I guess it shows the importance of being able to have other platforms where we can talk about these issues in the way that we want to talk about them, um, through our own perspectives and the people that we get on to, to talk as well about their understandings and um, and who who, do, who who doesn't get a platform on a day like International Women's Day. Absolutely, and why that is, yeah. um, which is yeah, such an important point to remember. Um, and also to just, like, I guess, address 
I, I'm really curious to know, um, and it's something I, I don't think I'll ever have answered, but why these sort of folks do attend these spaces and do, um, you know, attempt to reclaim spaces that were never explicitly. It, it's just such a, um entitled, you know, thing to do to bring violence into a space um, that could is so laced with violence as is. Mm. Um, Are you talking about the protesters? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's really disturbing yeah. um, to see their, their marriage to violence so intimate yeah, in definitely. public space. Yeah, I guess, I mean, what are they hoping to achieve? They're just trying to disturb the... Yeah. Like, disrupt the agenda of the protest. Yeah. It's like rebels without a cause. Yeah. Not even rebels, really. Yeah. Just <laughs> fascists. <laughs> well, hopefully their voices get, you know, more and more and more pushed out of that space because they, yeah. they don't belong in that space and they shouldn't have a platform on a day like Inter- International Women's Day. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess we'll see what happens next year. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll go to a song. Yeah. Uh, I want to play this track by Angie Stone. It's called Wish I Didn't Miss You.
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Celebrate your furry and feathered friends at Pets in the Park for a day of entertainment, competitions, wildlife encounters and interactive demonstrations in the name of responsible pet ownership. Interactive Australian wildlife encounter The Roo Keepers return along with animal behaviourist Lara Shannon from TV's Pooches at Play. And vet expert Dr Melissa Meehan demonstrates animal first aid for that special member of your family. Pets in the Park, Sunday the 22nd of March, 11 till 4pm, Central Park, Malvern East. The City of Stunnington is a 3CR supporter. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are so, so very excited to have the opportunity to speak to Larissa Crawford, who is an urban Métis and Jamaican woman, mother and the founder of Future Ancestors Services, an enterprise that provides speaking, training, research and community services that centre ancestral accountability, climate justice and equity. And in 2019, she was named an Action Canada Fellow and Corporate Knights 2019 Top 30 Under 30 in Sustainability. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited. <laughs> we are so excited. We've had this on the books for a couple of weeks now. Yeah. Um, it's great to finally be speaking with you. Yes, of course. And to be calling in from Canada, I'm glad <laughs> all yeah. this timeline worked out. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of wild. I love that. Technology these days. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah. So... I thought maybe we'd start off by talking about your own personal experience and how you got into activism and to be starting Future Ancestors Services. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a long journey. <laughs> um, but if I am, if I am to, um, okay, I'll start with, so in high school, um, I was really, I wanted to be doing something. I was learning about extreme poverty. I was looking, learning about globalization um, in high school. And I was like, I want to be doing something about that. And so the opportunity came along to um, actually take a volunteer trip to Ghana in uh, Pandai district. It's a, a, a district about 16 hours outside of Accra. And um, to volunteer at Let Us Shine Girls Academy. And before going, um, I knew about a year in advance. And so I was thinking, like, what can I do to bring something? Um, and so I just kind of looked around. And I was like, you know what? Let's bring books and school supplies. This school doesn't have a library. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I don't know how to do this, but I'm just going to go to schools in my community and ask them to set up a donation site, like a donation site. Um, this is like 16-year-old me just going to these offices <laughs> and saying, hey, can I set up a box and can students bring in books? Um, and every school in the community said yes. And so this was a, a medium-sized city. Um, everyone said yes. And 
within about six months, we we collected enough books and school supplies to fill a classroom. So to not only start a library there, but through the fundraising efforts, we connected with um, a woman who was starting a the first public library on a First Nations reserve in Western Canada. Um, and so we were able to donate so many of the books and school supplies to that library as well. And so for the ones that we brought to Ghana, we literally just put them in a suitcase and like eight suitcases. There were, there were a lot of suitcases <laughs> and we brought them over and I ended up volunteering there. Um, and it was an amazing experience when we came back. Um, me and my teacher who I went with, when we came back, our school ended up adopting um, the school we volunteered with in Ghana as a sister school. So that connection kept on going. They had a pen pal program. Um, and that, that, that kind of legacy stayed on with the schools. Um, but in that experience, I definitely learned that that's the kind of work I want to do, but I didn't find the cause that I was committed to. I didn't find the cause that really was appropriate to my skill set, but I knew it's what I wanted to study and pursue. So I went to university, um, Really great. I ended up doing a full year exchange to Istanbul, Turkey, where I studied international law and worked with refugees um, because I thought, oh, I want to go save the world. I want to do all this work with refugees. And so that's what I did for a year. Um, and when I came back, it was an amazing experience. But again, I, I came back not knowing the cause I wanted to be committed to. Mm. And that was appropriate to my skill set and lived experience. My work there it just, I found that it was not appropriate for me to be doing that. I didn't understand enough about the context. Um, I was do, I was there for the wrong reasons. Mm. I was glorifying this idea of global humanitarian, humanitarianism without really critically reflecting on what am I doing for the people and communities that I come from. Um, I mean, I had always been involved, but I was never connecting that work to my professional work and professional studies. And so when I came home, I had this identity crisis. I was like, who am I? Like, what am I doing? What am I committed to? And so then I really sat down and I reflected, on, okay, well, what do I care about? Um, and when I looked at my unchanging values that have just been important to me for my whole life, it was anti-racism work. So really looking to understand racism and understand how it affects people and how it is maintained. And that really goes back to like my earliest experience of remembering playing on the side of the road we grew up in a trailer park um, in the backwoods of Alberta which I like to explain as like the Texas of Canada um well and we lived a couple kilometers away from like a KKK community a white supremacist community I remember like playing on the side of the road and this big truck with these um these two white folk in the car they started yelling at me out of nowhere I wasn't close to the road like I wasn't doing anything. I was just kind of playing, picking flowers, and they started yelling at me. And that was the first time I remember hearing the word, the N-word. Mm-hmm. And I went home, and I told my mom, and she was like, oh, no, like, I, I can't remember what explanation she gave. But when I was 19, she explained what had actually happened. And so it was around 19, I was like, oh, wow, like, I, I kind of, I'm starting to, I want to know more about this. Um, and then two, we were like food bank poor. We grew up like in that trailer park. My mom had three kids on her own. Um, and so we relied on the, the giving and the volunteer work of so many people in our community. And so that was something else I really valued was the givingness, the, the selflessness and a commitment to community and collective well-being. And then I grew up with 
the love of nature and traditional knowledge and teachings. And so I really value nature as being core to my identity. So I really reflected on what was important to me. And then the other part was I really wanted to understand more about who I was, what is my ancestry. And in exploring that ancestry and realizing, like, I carry a slave name, like, Mm-hmm. In my Jamaican diaspora, like Crawford is not a traditional name. That is a slave name. And so looking into more about the legacies of the slave trade and what that looked like in Jamaica and the impact that that had on um, Jamaicans men, even ability to um, to continue the traditions of fatherhood and the roles mm-hmm. father played in those family units and figuring it and like realizing how actively um, colonialism and settler colonialism really tried to break that down. And so it made more sense to me about like why I'm so disconnected from my father and why I have all these issues on that side of, and all that trauma on that side of the family. And then looking to like my Métis family, like understanding that like my, one of my ancestors owned in, like First Nations slaves. So like my indigenous ancestors owning other indigenous slaves. And so really figuring out, wow, the deep, um, complex relations mm-hmm. of colonialism and how I'm so directly tied to so many of them. And so then I started getting to have more of a commitment to my communities and having more of a relationship to my histories and starting to understand how the impacts of my ancestors directly, um, or the actions of my ancestors directly impacted um my life today and really trying to understand how that happened and so yeah so I I, that was when I really found a direction in terms of I'm going to invest my professional my education my personal life into understanding this better Um, and that's when I started to really understand the the power of attaching myself to those values and that ancestry and that purpose rather than titles or rather than sectors of work. Mm. And as I started to explore that, as I, I just ensured that any opportunity I took, it was associated with those values. It was associated with this idea of my actions as a person, as a future ancestor is going to impact future generations. Like that is what I've centered my, my steps towards. Mm. And so yeah, like that, that's kind of how I, I found myself. Um, that's how I kind of found this cause, this like this drive. Um, and then when I had my daughter in when I was 21 in my fourth year of university, fourth of five, five years, um, that's very much like, again, that other that boost of like commitment to these causes. Um, and then, yeah, so I guess that's kind of like how I got to the that's how I got to my drive. Um, in terms of how I got to the kind of activism that I identify with, so I've always been um, someone who goes to protests, someone who goes to rallies. I do like try to support on the ground as much as possible and stay connected to that. But I also have never taken the leap of organizing those, those rallies, organizing those protests. I've recognized that that's maybe not the strength that I have. What I did find, and this was through different kind of volunteer opportunities um, and research and policy and um, and understanding like a language that resonates with politicians, a language that resonates with 
academia and colonial institutions and learning that language, um, I found that my power was really in being able to take the voices, take the needs, take the the realities of what I'm seeing in my communities, what I'm seeing on the ground, and translating that into a way, into a language that people in these boardroom spaces can resonate with in a, in a way that they can hear it and then move forward. And I think that's really where I found my power as an activist is, yes, staying connected to that frontline work, but really taking that and trying to amplify it in a way that reaches a whole bunch of different kinds of audiences. Um, and so that's, that's really how I understand my activism. Um, and I know I've been talking for a while, but how that translated <laughs> into future ancestors services was, um, I mean, I, I was working in government, all levels of government. I was working in nonprofits up until like November 2019. Um, I was working in all these places, um, learning all these institutional ways, ins and outs, policies. Um, but it was getting very exhausting. Um, I mean, not only workplace ageism, workplace, workplace age um, racism, um, and I can maybe get into that a little later, but mm. um, also ableism. So, like, mm. in August 2018, I was diagnosed with a chronic pain disability. Um, and that has definitely been my biggest hurdle to nine-to-five work um, mm. in terms of being able to um, even have remote work accommodations. Um, like, at one point, it's just like, I just need two days a week where I can be remote working. And it was completely possible with the work that I was doing. I was producing better work when I was working, but there was so much resistance to my medical accommodations mm. that eventually I just had to leave my last place of employment. Um, and that's when I really, that's when I really invested into like the Future Ancestors Services Incorporation. Um, I mean, I've been doing on the side of like these government jobs and stuff. Like I was building a network outside of those spaces with people who identify with what I'm going through, with organizations who saw what I was doing in government and wanted to do that for their own organizations. And so that's when I really started to get into contract work. And with all this contract work, I started doing on the side, and I was building my capacity, I was building my network and my client base. Um, and so I had this side hustle that was just blooming, and it was at the point in November 2019 where I also quit um, but where I could quit knowing that I was actually going to be making more money from doing this contract work as well. So everything kind of aligned. Um, and I, I got to a point where I knew I could sustain myself and my family financially. I knew I had the client base. I had been doing this for enough years. I had been doing contract work for three years to that point um, where I knew that I'm at a place where I can now really speak to actively uplift other people on a bigger scale to be doing the same kind of work that I'm doing. Mm. And that's very much what I intend with Future Ancestors Services. It is so, it is so nice to hear you 
talk about your experience coming to activism and also how you define yeah. activism mm. and I love mm. the way you talked about that and the and how you carve out a place where it works for you we want to get mm-hmm. we want to give you a breather because you've just given us so much <laughs> so, so much yeah. we, so good. we love to play a song and then come back and really get stuck into some Perfect. of those points that you mentioned and your work with future ancestors services if you just tuned in we're Perfect. talking to Larissa Crawford we're going to go to a song. I thought, or we thought we would maybe hear some Sampa. Oh, Sampa the so Great. So exciting. <laughs> G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. Freedom. 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 Freedom.
Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast uh, at 3CR. We are chatting to the incredible Larissa Crawford um, from Future Ancestor Services. If you are listening, um, we are very excited to be able to be chatting to her all about her relationship to climate justice and how important it is that that centres Indigenous sovereignty. Welcome back, Larissa. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, I mean, before the before the song, which was by Sampa, the absolute greatest, um, before the song, you were discussing your relationship to activism um, and also the your relationship to colonialism, which I found really, really interesting. And yeah. um, it's something that I notice a lot in discourse surrounding Indigenous sovereignty in this particular country, mm-hmm. um, that... A lot of people don't know how to discuss, um, yeah. I guess, what it means to be an ancestor of any kind of legacy, be it a racist one or, you know, of any kind. And I, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of cool seeing you reclaim that space and just essentially be like, yeah. you know, we all live in this in this context. So I guess, um, yeah. given that, how important is it for you to get yeah. people to center themselves as future ancestors, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, in just like the teachings I've gotten from future, this idea of ancestry, this idea of positioning ourselves in space and time, mm. um, I think it's very, it's been very empowering to myself. Um, because as I said before the break, like I, this connection to my indigenous ancestors who owned other indigenous slaves under a time of colonialism. Um, and then looking at um, the fact that I carry a slave master name and like, what does that mean to me? And what is my responsibility to reclaim that identity and the culture that's been lost? What is my responsibility to reparations for what my ancestors ancestors did to other people's ancestors and the legacies that that carries even now? Mm. Um, and when I started to learn these things, this idea of decolonization became so personalized. And I started to understand myself within a web of complex leg- legacies, complex complex relationships. But this lens of ancestry really helped me give language and really helped me give framing to, okay, these are the actions that took place. These are the actions that our ancestors did. Mm. And this is the impact that it's having now. And now looking at and really critically reflecting in all aspects of my life, these are the actions I'm taking. These are the inactions I may be taking. What could be the consequences of this on future ancestors, on future generations? Mm. Because we are our future generations ancestors. And I've since really finding that power in understanding that for myself, I've really worked that into the speaking, training and research contract services that I deliver. Mm. Um, and that's really where the idea of this future ancestors services incorporation came out of um, was really like, I bring this into all of my work. We're going to be very upfront about that. If you are bringing me or anyone from my team into a contract, we're going to have a conversation about ancestral accountability. We're going to have a conversation about how we are acting as future ancestors because it's relevant in any sector. It's relevant for any topic. And it's a great place to begin a conversation um, when we really reflect on how did we come to these lands 
who was displaced from these lands when we came? Mm. Um, or if we are the original peoples of those lands, what were our cultures? What were our languages? What power did we have? Um, and to look at the resiliency of those cultures and languages, to look at um, the decimation of that in some cases, um, and just to really reflect on that using this lens of ancestry. It, again, creates a personal connection to those histories. And, yes, it's uncomfortable. It can be very uncomfortable at times mm. on all fronts. But I think that being having those conversations helps people navigate um, difficult conversations in a way that is personalized um, because I find that um, I have a lot of difficult conversations working with anti-racism work mm. um, and advocating for indigenous traditional knowledge in spaces where it's typically been outright suppressed and devalued. So to have those difficult conversations, they are they're difficult conversations, but when we're starting with ancestry, when we establish shared histories when we understand ourselves in this timeline, in a timeline where everyone is connected, mm. um, it, it begins to get a bit easier. Um, and it begins, again, to personalize. And especially when we're talking about climate justice, when we're talking about climate change, which is a very big and scary thing, mm. it's very hard to understand ourselves within that context. It's very difficult to understand our commitment for a lot of people whose cultures aren't necessarily um, whose cultures don't necessarily um, center land in the same way that many indigenous cultures do. Um, and so if that's not inherently a part of your culture, like feeling connected to climate change work, feeling connected to climate justice work, like um, again, using the idea of ancestry, using the idea of, we need this space for future ancestors. We need to preserve the land to create mm. equitable, sustainable societies and relationships between people so that our children, so ourselves, <laughs> can live past, like, 80. Um, and so, yeah, I've just found a lot of power in it. And it's a way that we can be honoring Indigenous traditional knowledge around the world um, and create space where, yes, our traditional value or our traditional knowledge systems are valuable. Mm. We need to return to these ways of thinking. And this is a way that can anyone can resonate with. Um, and that I've found I've been able to draw really profound connections to people around the world when we talk about these teachings. Mm. That kind of links nicely to our next question, I guess, thinking about how how to engage with people in in a transnational or global context, uh, context. and you've yeah. um, and as you mentioned, there is great value in the uh, in the lived experiences um, and in the context of humanitarianism, yeah. like how you mentioned your relationship to racism. How difficult mm -hmm. then is it for you to try and recruit activists that don't necessarily have <clears throat> those kinds of experiences, but do have the privilege? of whiteness or wealth and you also wanted yeah. to talk to us about code switching so maybe code switching in the context of that yeah work. yeah so they yeah no that's that's a great question and i think um i think that it's like i i do work with a lot of 
um, non-Indigenous people. I do work with a lot of people who have privilege and don't really know what to do with it. Mm. And oftentimes I start the conversations by acknowledging my own privilege and recognizing that privilege is fluid depending on where you are, depending on what you're doing. Um, I carry more privilege, say, in a university than I do um, than I do in, say, a community that I'm not really a part of. Um, and so, like, I start by acknowledging my own kinds of privilege. So, like, I'm a light-skinned black person, um, but I, so I have the benefit of being lighter-skinned in a society that has this hierarchy of um, of lightness. Um, where people with darker skin are going to be treated differently than people with lighter skin. Mm. And so I acknowledge, like, when I walk into a space, people may see me differently. Um, when I walk into a space, yes, I have curly Afro hair, but sometimes I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull it back. I'm going to have the privilege of looking more, um, looking in a way that is maybe less intense. Intimidating mm. to someone who carries racial bias, who's someone with someone who associates certain things with dark skin, who associates certain things with curly, big Afro hair. And so I have a fluidity with my identity and I use that privilege in that I get into those spaces. Um, but then I'm going to flip the switch and I'm going to call out things and I'm going to bring issues to the table um, with the privilege that I have in accessing that space. I recognize that I have a responsibility to bring in the voices, to bring in the needs, to bring in the realities that aren't being discussed in those spaces. And so I try to explain to people how you can use privilege in different ways. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of privilege in terms of education. And that's an, like I use my education. I use the opportunity I had to learn a colonial language to learn the institutions and how they operate, I use that now to be able to insert activist um, messages into spaces that are not necessarily expecting that, Mm. into boardroom spaces, into policy negotiations, where they aren't exactly expecting that kind of message to come in. But because of the language I'm able to use, because of the framing I'm able to use, Mm. they may not see it coming. And sometimes it's important to call it out, but in other spaces, sometimes it's important for me to use my privilege in a way um, that, in a way that brings in these messages, that dismantles these colonial institutions. Um, again, in a way that um, that's working with everyone, but really bringing the activist message into those spaces. So that's what I usually try to start with when working with people um, is just acknowledge that like everyone carries different kinds of privilege. And when you identify the different kinds of privilege that you have, you can't only feel guilt about it. And I find that especially a lot of the white folk that I work with, they, they start to feel guilty about it. Mm. And it's like, no, no, Look at the opportunity you have to use that privilege to take that privilege away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's a very simple way of putting it. Um, But to equal out the playing field, to to advance reparations, to advance land back, to advance um, uh, equity. And so I think that that's really important to acknowledge. And once we flip the switch from guilt to you are empowered to do something good, 
let's do something about it. Mm. I think that that's really exciting for a lot of people. And that's where I find a lot of my success with working with um, people who hold that like different kinds of privilege. Um, and then two, really discussing like and being really critical about this idea of allyship. And like, I know we just had International Women's Day. And so like, um, we're, we're all coming together with celebrating women. Um, but then acknowledging too that it cannot be a mutual admiration congregation. It can't be everyone just patting each other on the back and saying we're doing great. Um, or we're, we're not doing great. <laughs> but it really has to be a critical conversation about, um, yes, women, non-binary folk were, were being uplifted or not. And like yeah. to recognize who holds privilege, who doesn't, who's being oppressed, who's benefiting from the oppressed. Um, where's the power, um, who's not getting their due recognition. And that's a big one. Who's not getting their due recognition. Um, and so international women's day is like a really interesting space that we can bring up this idea of allyship. We can bring up this idea of gender equality and bring in a more intersectional lens that looking at gender, but from the other intersections of race, of sexuality, of um, other gender identities and acknowledging the different experiences that we all have and the different access we all have. Mm. Um, and to have those critical conversations, especially in the context of climate change, especially in the context of occupying Indigenous lands. Mm. Like, these cannot be separated. These, these conversations cannot be separated. And so, like, I, I did uh, quite a bit of International Women's Day um, events over the past couple days and we really talked about what does allyship look like it looks like talking about these things and looking to understand the connection between land the connection between gender the connection between power and privilege mm. um, and understanding that and 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 so like educating yourself on that but then also doing something about it um, and something doing something about it may be amplifying um, the stories that aren't getting their due recognition. It may be um, bringing in a diverse speakers panel to your office or bringing in a different kind of training to your office. It could be so many different things. Um, but the, the, the biggest piece is educating yourself about it and then seeking to understand different ways that you can you can do something about it, D- different ways that you can really acknowledge that yes maybe we this company has maybe we as a company have 50 percent gender um parity Mm. but what kind of women are being uplifted Mm. are we being critical about um our contributions to systems of um land dispossession are we contributing um and benefiting from uh the oppression of the racialized cleaning staff mm. and are they getting their due record? Like, like there's so many different elements and it's too complicated to talk about in this like short podcast, but I think that it's really important conversations and, and that international women's day is an opportunity to talk about those things. And mm. I think throughout the week, it's very much been top of conversation and so many people are pushing this celebration um, and this, this opportunity to celebrate and to talk into that direction, into the direction of being critical, into the direction of conversation to action. But now the question is, like, are people willing to listen? Are people willing to invite us into those spaces? Um, And are they not only willing to listen, but are they willing to do something about it? Are they willing to listen and do what we're telling them to do? 
Absolutely. And this, I mean, there were so many things that you just mentioned that would be a conversation in and of themselves, in mm. and of itself. And <laughs> we, we are so, so out of time, but we, we've, we're so grateful yeah. that you, that you made space for us this morning and to share your work. And if you're listening and you want to know more about future mm. ancestors services, jump online because you're on Instagram, you're on Twitter, Twitter yeah. you're, you're all over the socials. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, your, your work, yeah. the, the advocacy you do on those platforms is really accessible. So yeah. even if you don't have knowledge about these yeah. systems of oppression and the language yeah. around that, your work really lays that out. Um, thank you so, yeah. so much for your time this morning, Larissa. We, we will be looking on at, um, down here Absolutely. <laughs> at, at everything yeah. that, you, um, that, that you put out there in the world. And we really appreciate you speaking with us this morning. Thank you so much for bringing me on. And like, <laughs> yeah, social media at Ancestors Future. Because we are ancestors future and we are future ancestors. So thank you so much yes. for having me. Um, <laughs> I love Australia. I hope you come down. Come sometime visit. Soon. Yes. Next time, yes. next time you can come to the studio. That'd be great. Perfect. <laughs> Have a good Perfect. day. Thank you. <laughs> All right. To you as well. Thank you. Kevin Hines Grow delivers gardening and nature-based programs to people of all ages and all abilities. Our programs provide great opportunities for positive personal development and well-being. Join us on Saturday the 21st of March for our annual Autumn Fair and Open Day. This is a fantastic opportunity for you to meet our friendly team and learn more about our programs with a focus on experiential learning and positive personal development. There will also be a huge variety of perennials, fruit trees, herbs and seedlings for sale in the nursery, as well as great coffee and food. Our Autumn Fair and Open Day will be held from 9am till 3pm at 39 Weatherby Road, Doncaster and 512 Sydney Road, Coburg. Kevin Hines Grow is a 3CR supporter. We are back uh, at 3CR after an incredibly energising conversation with Larissa Crawford, who I could just listen to for hours, um, from Future Ancestors Services. But now we actually get to speak to another very awesome person, Wallace, from the Foundation of Young Australians. How are you, Wallace? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, you are running an event called Breaking the Binary uh, tomorrow. I was going to say next week. So we're hoping to maybe just chat to you a little bit about this event, what inspired it and what was it born out of? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. So we got together, the team and I were discussing International Women's Day and how we celebrate it. Usually we discussed how it was about um, putting cis women in the spotlight and celebrating them, but what about everyone else? Mm. How we could include uh, more diverse people and you know make sure that they are represented and seen. And so breaking the binary came about. Um, we really wanted to include non-binary people and people who didn't identify necessarily as female. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yes, yeah, so we, we created Breaking the Binary and we have some amazing queer and non-binary performers coming along to help shine some light on that diversity. I love that. I think it's so important to um, have space for that, especially in the context of International Women's Day, which can be incredibly cis-centric um, and just fail to acknowledge the, the diversity of gender um, and how it's experienced by individuals. Absolutely. And, you know, with, you know, society always changing and adapting, 
the language is changing and so are people's identities and you know it's not just a spectrum any i mean it's not just black and white anymore it's a spectrum and people are you know moving along that and, and choosing and changing and it doesn't have to be all black and white absolutely um and how important are community focused events such as this that work to unite you know, marginalised bodies in one particular public space, like to get us off the internet for a night and to get us into each other's arms. <laughs> totally, yeah. This is it's super important. Like, um, I think it's a great way for everyone to learn to connect and and just be present. Um, you know, these grassroots small small events are really helping to you know show up for mm. people of diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the short film that is being screened? It's called My Walk Home. Um, yeah. What can we expect out of that? So My Walk Home was filmed by a team on the YSD, the Young Social Pioneers um, group who, mm-hmm. who work at YLA um, and FYA. And um, it was shot in the perspective of a, a young girl walking home at night and all the vulnerabilities that she faces. Incredible, yeah. incredible. Yeah. And it's such a thing, uh, um, you know, in terms of discussions around violence, especially violence that's against women um, and and people that are gender non-conforming as well. You can really feel that in your body when you occupy a public space. Like you can feel that when you're walking home. You can feel that sort of it's, – it's always in the back of your mind. Um, and I just – I yeah, I'm really excited to be in, in a space such as this one at Breaking the Binary and to have that sense of solidarity um, – in a safe way, which is nice. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And we have you performing as well. Yes, yeah, so exciting. I'm really, really <laughs> looking forward to that. For listeners at home, where can they find information about Breaking the Binary? And is it's free and is it over 18? Tell us a little yeah, bit about absolutely. access. Yes, yeah, so it is fully accessible. We have um, offline interpreters for the deaf and hard of hearing. If, mm-hmm. um, if you know of anybody who's coming along, you can certainly share the word on that. We can find it... Um, information and posters about the event on uh, Ylab's Facebook page, that's mm-hmm. Y-L-A-B. Uh, it, the event is being held in Brunswick at a place called Tom's Place, which is another one for Vic Street. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's free. It's an over-18s event, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, there'll be food, there'll be drinks, there'll be amazing entertainment bands. We've got a band called Woman and Francesca Gonzalez uh, is performing and we've got yourself and Kaya Parrot and um, lots of workshops on on how to self-love and self-care. So, yeah, it'll be an amazing night. So exciting and such a good way to, I guess, solidify the importance of International Women's Day through a more inclusive um, and more accessible way. Absolutely, and that's what it's all about, you know, trying to be as inclusive as possible. That's it. Well, thank you so, so, so much for um, speaking to us today, Wallace. I'm so excited about tomorrow, um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be very keen to head down. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. Cheers. Have a good one. Celebrate your furry and feathered friends at Pets in the Park for a day of entertainment, competitions, wildlife encounters and interactive demonstrations in the name of responsible pet ownership. Interactive Australian wildlife encounter The Root Keepers return along with animal behaviourist Lara Shannon from TV's Pooches at Play. And vet expert Dr Melissa Meehan demonstrates animal first aid for that special member of your family. Pets in the Park, Sunday the 22nd of March, 11 till 4pm, Central Park, Malvern East. The City of Stonington is a 3CR supporter.
G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, racing through, as, <laughs> as we often do. We're going to squeeze in one more interview before we get out of here this morning. So on the line, we have Jason Wong, who is a Chinese-Malaysian international student training to be a secondary science teacher and a member of Solidarity. He was involved with Stand Together Against Racism's work against the travel ban a few weeks ago and is organising an event which will be held tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jason. Hi, uh, pleased to be on the show. So, where do we start? Can you give us a bit of background, I guess, into what has been going on? I'm sure many of our listeners will uh, be engaged with this already, uh, the racism that has culminated around coronavirus this last month. Yeah, so just to give a picture of the impacts of the travel ban so far, so people will be aware that the travel ban has so far been um, extended to four countries, so China, South Korea, Iran and uh, Italy, where the cases are most severe. Mm. Um, but here, the impact of the travel ban has been um, on three main fronts. I think um, there'll be racism experienced by people of, of Asian appearance, of East Asian appearance especially. Um, so people being avoided on public transport, for example, and in public places. Um, but it's also on people who have, pre- who have been directly prevented from, from coming in. So students, for example, I've got classmates who've been prevented from coming mm. back to start class, the cohort here at the MGSE is about 10% smaller than it should be. Uh, migrant workers, uh, families who have been separated because some of them are citizens and some of them are not. So some of them are able to come in through the tra- travel ban mm. and get medical treatment and others um, are not. And workers in related industries, industries as well, obviously, there's been a big uh, news about uh, the tourism industry being quite heavily affected by this. But also higher ed- education workers, for example, here at the University of Melbourne, uh, we're getting sporadic reports of uh, casual workers here, uh, casual tutors here at the university who've had their contracts either temporarily suspended yes. or in danger of having their contracts terminated because the demand for those um, costs simply isn't there because the students have been banned from coming back. 
Yeah, so it's had huge ramifications, hey. And and why why do people oppose the ban, including the World Health Organization, and what alternatives do they um, say should be taken into consideration? There's a bunch of reasons you'd be uh, against against a travel ban. Like, firstly, on a medical medical basis, um, the ban as it is is uh, it's poor it's poor it's poorly in- implemented. So mm-hmm. it biases against, um, of course, the citizens. There's, there's an argument here that. Uh, for for whatever reason, citizens and permanent residents are, residents are more worthy of healthcare provided by the Australian taxpayer than than, than a visitor. Mm-hmm. Um, but also among the epidemiological community, it's well understood that travel bans like this don't actually stop the spread of virus completely. They can slow it down by about a week or a week or so, and then after that, every other measure which the WHO has been recommending from the start has to come into play. And what governments are doing is using the travel ban as a crutch to uh, uh, prevent themselves from having to actually deal with the questions of the supply of ventilators and the supply of quarantine facilities right. and support for uh, people who are self-isolating. There's no use in uh, declaring to even a citizen who's come back from China that they have to self-quarantine 14 days if they have if they immediately get prevented from going to the supermarket to get groceries after a long trip overseas. There needs to be people who uh, are, are are around to support people in various stages of quarantine and and of course the medical facilities available for people who have pneumonia for. For example, the ban in that sense is, is is quite a distraction, and of course we've discussed the impact of um, the ban on migrant workers as well. So the Migrant Workers Centre and the NTU, the the staff union here at the university, have come out um, against the travel ban for this exact reason, mm. because it disrupted um, the ability of migrant workers and students to uh, run their normal working lives, to keep up with their rent, to keep up with their studies, uh, and things like that. And of course, um, the racism that it's generated. Um, you, you we remember that. Scott Morrison and the Liberal government were very uh, quick to pull the trigger on a, on a travel ban against China, whereas if you imagine the outbreak occurred in somewhere like the United States as yeah. it did in 2009 with H1N1, um, the trigger would not have been pulled so quick. Would not have been pulled so quickly, and the consequences of that uh, of the travel ban as a distraction have resulted in uh, people not having a clear idea of how the virus spread, where it's coming from, and that means um, discrimination against uh, people of East Asian appearance um, yeah. in public. Totally, and I think that's a really important point that you raise, that if this had have happened in another country, that there isn't already this deep-seated you know, racism um, towards th- this place, then we would not have seen the reaction occur in the same way. And, and, that, and that kind of fear that, you know, what, what has happened in the media in the last month, that it's just, it's just completely exploded, and, and we've seen, you know, this... So many issues going on, and it's it's very much a case of underlying racism that is that is coming out, which I'm which is of course not surprising to anyone that that knows firsthand what that racism looks like. But it is it is quite scary that we're seeing this in uh, on such a large scale at the moment. So, can you talk briefly? I mean, we only have uh, two minutes left on the show, but. Um, yeah. you're, you've got a, a meeting planned for tomorrow. Can you tell us what you'll be discussing? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's not actually tomorrow. It's next Wednesday. Oh, sorry. My, my apologies. Yeah, okay, right. next that's Wednesday. Right. Um, so it's, um, it's coming up on Wednesday the 18th of March uh, at 6 p.m. at the Kathleen Syme Library in Carlton. So it's just uh, half a block away from the tram terminus at the University of Melbourne. And Solidarity is having an, uh, a public branch meeting on the travel bans, racism, and borders. So we'll be discussing, we'll be going to a bit of the politics behind it. So basically the politics of um, how imperialism has conditioned the Australian government's response to, to, to travel bans. They've been quite quick to pull the trigger on travel bans to Iran and China, but not so much on mm. uh, South Korea and Italy until recently. And also a little bit about, um, I, I imagine in the coming days, 
um, a discussion about the the, the, the medical fund the medical funding issues in the event that um, the the epidemic does arrive on our shores. Um, is the is the has the government been investing enough in facilities to deal with um, the increase in pneumonia cases and the and, and the increased amount of quarantine facilities? Quarantine facilities. Yeah. Of course, the question of uh, paid sick leave as well for uh, workers who are workers who are directly affected, especially uh, migrant workers who. Um, who just managed to make it just managed to make it back and have those considerations yeah so uh, clearly a lot to discuss there and i really i also mm. wanted to circle back um it was really important that you mentioned that this the way that the media and the government is handling this is very much a distraction from the potential that they lack a lot of those resources to adequately deal with this mm. um with the spread of this virus so we might have to end it there but we'll share the link to that event on our facebook page thank you so much for joining us this morning jason Don't and worry. all the best with the event next Great week to be here. thank you for having me so that is about all we have time for today. It's been a huge show. Um, Massive. Yes. Massive. <laughs> um, and we'd like to thank all of our guests. We had Larissa Crawford from Future Ancestors Services who mm-hmm. called in all the way from Canada. Yeah. We had Wallace from the Foundation of Young Australians to discuss Breaking the Binary, which is happening tomorrow night in Brunswick. You can find all of the information online. Yes. And Madison will be speaking at that, sharing some Poetry? Poetry, yes. yes cool. Yeah. So if you're not sick of my voice, come through. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and lastly, we spoke with Jason Wong about the impact of the travel ban, which has, has been imposed due to coronavirus and obviously the racism that is being experienced. So that's all for us today. Up next is Accent of Women. We will be back next week with another jam-packed show, I'm sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. See you then. Bye.